relationship between sacraments in the Old and New Testament. Look a little bit at the two sacraments in particular, and then we'll go back over the questions to consider so we can answer them with a little bit more clarity. So uh, that's the outline. Hopefully we'll get through uh, everything, but we'll see. So the questions to consider, uh, first one is, what is the relationship between the Word and the sacraments? Which is more important, meaning which has primacy and why? Um, that's sort of the that first question is, is the primary question that we're seeking to answer in this lesson. What's the relationship between the Word of God and the sacraments? Second question, what is the relationship between the Old Testament sacraments, uh, Passover and circumcision, and the New Testament sacraments, and why is that relationship important? How does that guide our understanding of what the sacraments are and why, uh, what their purpose is? Third question, why did God give us physical depictions of his word? That's one uh, quick definition of what a sacrament is. And what should our what should be our response to this gift? Sacraments are a gift of God. Uh, why, how should we respond to that, to that gift? And then the last question, of what practical use in your life are the sacraments? And of what practical use should they be? Okay, so moving on. To etymology, uh, etymology is just study of, of how words develop, uh, where they come from. So I think I got this definition from Wikipedia. So take it for what it is. But I think it's a it's a pretty good summary of the etymology, the history of the word sacrament. It says the English word sacrament is derived indirectly from the ecclesiastical Latin sacramentum, from Latin sacro, hollow or consecrate, from sacred, sacred or holy. This, is turn, this, in turn, is derived from the Greek New Testament word mysterium. So, uh, what are some other words that you can think of that derive from the same root? Sacro, sacred, sacrament. What are some other related words? And what do they mean? Sacred. Sacred. What does sacred mean? It's like set apart. Set apart, right? So that's the, the the biblical term or meaning of the term holy, right? It's to to be set apart, to be cut off from the world and, and set apart for God. Okay? What else? Sacrifice. Sacrifice? Good. I think so. I'm not really sure. It sounds sounds like it is. Um that's the same, the, the, the sacrifice is devoted to God, right? Set apart, devoted to God. Okay, so, so how does this etymology of the word sacrament, how does that inform our understanding of the sacraments? Yeah, held in high regard, great importance. Um, 
Does anyone else have anything to add to that before we move on? I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the, era, the era in history when our terminology for sacraments developed was the time when in uh, among our European ancestors the big question was where do we find the divine in human experience? And they were looking for the sacred within the world. It was a common theme in art and literature and so on. And our terminology for sacraments developed in that context. Where do we find the sacred? Okay, great. Yeah, sacred in the world. That's uh, that's great. Good historical note. Thank you for that. Um, and that that will certainly uh, that that goes along with our our understanding of the what the sacraments are and, and what the purpose is. So we're going to look at some uh, historical understandings of the sacraments. This is a super interesting um, part of it. Uh, we don't have enough time to, to go into it super super detailed, um, in a super detailed fashion. So the first the first one I have here is Augustine's definition, which is very um, prevalent, and the, the reformed understanding of the sacraments follow along with this. He said the sacraments are the visible form of an invisible grace. So someone explain that quote for the class. Well, from the Reformation, it is. Uh, it's, it went from a uh, concept of the actual blood and body of Christ being done to a. Uh, it is a representation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins, and that is the only way to salvation through our belief that it's not. This is the actual body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll talk about the Roman Catholic and Lutheran and maybe a little bit of Orthodox understandings of the sacraments. But yeah, the, the Reformed understanding is particularly with, with the Lord's Supper, that it's not a there's not a physical presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. It is a spiritual spiritual presence. He's really present, but in a spiritual way. Okay. Uh, what else? What are some other explanations of Augustine's definition that we can give? I think he said it very well as a representation, um, something that we can concretely, tangibly feel, touch, relate to, so that it, you know we we weren't there when Christ made the sacrifice, and it's a it's our way of. Understanding that through this ceremony, okay, and in particular the Lord's Supper, yeah, yeah, and I, um, I would caution us. Uh, I, I think representation is a good word, but there is, <laughs> but there's also a uh, there is a penalty for taking yeah. it. Right, is a hey, I'm going to have some bread and some wine. Right, yeah, and that is not the the. The grace of Christ is, is still with us, whether or not we're eating bread or drinking wine. But we are reaffirming this as the visible symbol of His presence. Yeah. With us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a there's another understanding of to go to the Lord's Supper by um, Zwingli uh, it, it, and and sort of the Anabaptist 
tradition, um, that it's, it's just a bare uh, memorial, just a bare remembrance, that there's no actual grace transferred through the sacrament. So we want to we want to avoid that because that's not um, the historic Reformed understanding of the sacraments, particularly the Lord's Supper. But um, yeah, okay. So it's it's uh, kind of what, what Tom was saying, right? Where, where is the, the holy? Where is the sacred in in the world? The sacraments are visible pictures of an invisible grace. It's uh, the Word made visible, right? Christ is the word made flesh. Sacraments are the word made visible. I'm going to read the Reformed understanding. This is from Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. I think this is a good definition. There are, there's another definition from the, from the Confession that you can reference in the back um, on page 4, I think. This is from Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. It says, A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, in which by sensible signs the grace of God in Christ the benefits of the covenant of grace are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. And these, in turn, give expression to their faith and allegiance to God. All right, so I think that's a pretty good definition. I think uh, that's a, a pretty standard reform definition of the sacrament. So uh, let's unpack that definition a little bit. What is a sign? Sign is something distinct from what it represents or refers to, but that is that unmistakably refers to well the thing from which it is distinct. Yeah, yeah. So a sign is something that represents something else, right? Um, we were talking about sacraments in the Sunday school class a couple weeks ago, and uh, I, I used the example of a, a stop sign, right? The, the red octagon with the word stop on it. Um, it, it represents an action that you must take, right? You're not, um, you, your understanding of the stop sign is not limited to the physical, visible picture. It communicates something to the driver that the driver must do something at this point, right? So there's, when we talk about signs, there's, there's the sign and then there's the thing that is signified. So there's the actual thing and then there's what, what is represented by the thing. Okay, so sacraments are signs, sacraments are seals. What is a seal? Could you, could, could you think of it as a sign of a promise? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. What's, um, when we talk about like seals in maybe medieval times. What was the purpose of a seal? It was to bind together an envelope or uh, to make it official. Okay. Uh, yeah. If the seals were broken, something like that. Uh, if the seals were broken, then uh, you knew that there was some, something wrong that happened, right? Yeah, or, yeah there was some tampering. Or there was tampering. But it, uh, I think what it is, is it's a binding together of us to Christ. We're sealing ourselves to Christ. So creates a bond between two two objects, two, okay. two, two parties. Two parties. I would say uh, Christ is sealing something to us. Yes. Yes. But, uh, yes. Oh, I was just going to say, wasn't it also um, a mark of who sent 
the thing? Like, for example, like the seals would always have like the mark of the king. Yeah. If it was from the king's. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the king writes a law on the paper, he drips a wax on there, he puts a seal on there. So you know that it's from the king. So for that reason, the the signet ring is, is a precious thing. It's an important thing. If someone else gets that, then they can you know, sort of forge orders from the king. Okay, so yeah, it, it communicates from whom the message is, and it's also a binding of something between two parties. Um, yes? Just another aspect of, you know, it is, it, it's, it's the part where, you know, our, for instance, baptism, um, this is that sign and that seal that, you know, they're part of the covenant now. You know, again, not saved, there's no mystical things that have happened during that baptism, but now they have been signed, or excuse me, the seal has been placed upon them. They are now part of the covenant, and they are, um, you know, they, they're due, if you will, for lack of better terminology, the parts of the covenant that are in them, so they can enjoy that covenant. Right, right, so they, the benefits of the covenant are sealed to them, but also the responsibility. <coughs> Good. Uh, so I I picked out four criteria for something to be a sacrament according to Burkhoff from this definition. Make it easy. One is a sign. So a sacrament is a sign. That's A. Sacrament is a seal. That's B. What are some other? What are two other criteria? For something to be a sacrament according to Burkhoff's definition. Instituted by Christ. Instituted by Christ. Good. That will lead into uh, some of the differences that we have with Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Orthodox. It was instituted by Christ. And the fourth one? Applied to believers. Hmm? Applied to believers. Applied to believers uh, or the children of believers. Um, that's, that could be one. That's not one that I've, that I've thought of. Yes? Holy. Holy. Um, that's another possibility. <laughs> not one that I, yes? But uh, sacrament. Okay, yeah, so it's uh, strikes at the center of the gospel. That's good. That's also not one that I was thinking of. I was thinking of um, what he says here. Um, these, meaning the sacraments, in turn give expression to their faith and allegiance to God. So there's, a, there's an experiential aspect to the sacraments. Sacraments are not just of practical use, but they are of, or should be of practical use. So there's an experiential uh, aspect. Okay, so we looked at Augustine's definition, we looked at the Reformed understanding. What are some, if you know, what are some other understandings of the sacraments? It could be in general or it can be specific. Um, Lutheran, Reformed, Catholic, or excuse me, Roman Catholic, or Orthodox, or any other ones that you would like to share. Somebody quickly define one of these and we'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, growing up in conservative Lutheran circles, um, the sacraments were almost and at least according to some necessary for salvation. So okay. I had pastors tell me that if the baby wasn't baptized, then I him to hell. So. Yeah. Okay, and that's, I think, carryover from the Roman Catholic understanding. So for, for Roman Catholics, and I guess for the Prince, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but uh, certain sacraments are necessary. So baptism, I think, for Catholics... Um, Absolution or, or confession, uh, the, the, the last, the last rites, right? Uh, those are necessary, extreme unction. So. Okay, um, so is that what we believe that there are certain sacraments that are necessary for salvation? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
why not? Could you say that again? I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, so, so the the group in general said that sacraments are not necessary for salvation. Why not? Salvation's for grace alone. Okay, grace alone. Faith in Christ. Okay. Good. What are some other uh, differences between the Reformed understanding and some of these other understandings? How many sacraments are there in the Catholic Church, for instance? Seven. The, the Lutherans, I think, have three. Uh, baptism, Lord's Supper, and Confession? So. Uh, no, Scripture. Scripture? Okay. Uh, the Orthodox have seven, and then they, they sort of broaden it out to... They, they take the Greek, the Greek word mysterion and uh, say that there are lots of mysteries that are also could be also sacraments. So, <clears throat> why do we as Reformed Presbyterians recognize only two sacraments as opposed to seven or Do that the Bible says and instituted by Christ instituted by Christ, right? Yeah, it's what the Bible says. It's what Christ said. He instituted these two sacraments. So, yes? Well, and one of the other people in the discussion has always been the Mennonites. The Mennonites think there are three sacraments. There's baptism, there's the Lord's Supper, and there's foot washing. And they would say foot washing was the correct way, instituted by Christ, it's commanded by Christ. Why in the world do people not include foot washing as the third sacrament? And so that's one of the things that brought us That's very interesting. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, they'd say you reform people you're neglecting you know, the command of Christ is correctly instituted by Christ, just like baptism was, just like the Lord's Supper is. Why are you neglecting one one of these sacraments instituted directly by Christ? Hmm. That was like a parable in action. He did not say do this in remembrance of me. I don't I don't know where they I don't know why they decided that this was so well, Jesus himself washed the feet of the apostles. So if it was significant enough for him to do that, then it could be extrapolated out that we should do the same. Figuratively, maybe. He even told the apostles, I, I believe, um, that they should do likewise. They cook fish for breakfast, too. Yeah, he did a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I'm just sorry. Oh, I'm just sorry. Don't get that. No. No, I agree. I see what Linda's saying, that Jesus did so many things right. that every one of them can't be. But he said, do this. Yes. But he also he turned water into wine. And I'm not sure that we should be doing that. Yes. Okay. To, to avoid. Uh, Getting off track. We'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, skip over that, but thank, thank you, Tom. Yeah, that was very interesting. I'll have to look into that. Um, I don't really have any answers because I've never thought of it before. Yes. That's why Berkhoff, um, he says that the visible signs of the grace of God in Christ and the benefits of the covenant of grace in the standard form. We have response that the foot washing may be a very good thing too, and we're wrong in not doing it. But not directly a sign of the covenant. Okay. That's a good answer. Thank you. Um, okay, so uh, 
let's let's um, let's skip down to, to number one here under Roman numeral three. Uh, what what is the logical relationship between means of grace and, and sacraments? So uh, one of the misunderstandings I think for uh, more than two sacraments is that uh, they're, they're confusing a means of grace with a sacrament. So what is the logical relationship between these two? So, so for instance, marriage is one of the sacraments uh, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Church, I believe. Marriage is a means of grace, if we would all affirm that. What is, we, we say it's not a sacrament. So what is the logical relationship between means of grace and sacraments? All sacraments are means of grace, but not all means of grace are sacraments. Right, good. That's exactly what I, what I had in mind. So all sacraments are means of grace, because they are means by which God uh, gives grace to us. But not all means of grace are sacraments. And so a misunderstanding of that, you could say, well, reading your Bible is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. Um, corporate worship is a means of grace. Those are not sacraments. So that's um, a misunderstanding. We would seek to limit the understanding of sacraments to signs and seals that are instituted by Christ that have an experiential dimension. Okay. Um, and I just gave you an example. Marriage is a means of grace, but it's not a sacrament. Okay, so... How yes. can we not have an experiential dimension since we are physical beings and the only way we can experience a spiritual gift, i.e. grace, is through the only way we can, the only logical way for God to give us to work with him to apply for this spiritual gift is through our bodies. <laughs> I, I agree. I'm not. What, what is your question? How, how can the sacraments not have an experiential dimension? I, I think they do. No, but why do we even? I was just. Oh, oh, okay. Put that in definition, please. I I think because so, so it's experiential. Uh, yes, we, we experience it through our senses, but it also has the um, the further meaning that it, it changes our lives and so. So it, it, it changes, you know, when you take the Lord's Supper, that makes a real difference in your life. And, and I think sometimes we, we lose that when we, when we think about them. So uh, we'll get to that, though. Um, Could yes. you explain, um, because I'm just not getting it, how marriage is a means of grace? Well, uh, <laughs> I have nothing to do with my marriage, but I understand marriage is a covenant. Yes. And I'm just not sure what the means of grace is because you can marry the wrong person, and, well, and that's probably not what God wanted you to do. So there wouldn't be a means of grace, would Yeah. Well, uh, misuse of something doesn't change what it is. Um, I I can tell you from from my experience, I am God has used my marriage to sanctify me, to apply grace to my life. Make me less selfish and less, you know, all, all those sort of things. So that's why I say that it's a means of grace. I don't know. I would have to do more study to to, to give you a, a a better answer than that. Um, okay, so uh, this is an easy question. What are the two sacraments? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. Uh, if you look at Westminster Confession of Faith twenty-seven point four. On page four, it says there, there be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That's to say, 
baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the Lord, lawfully ordained. So why did the divines think it's so important uh, as to include that statement, that there are only two sacraments? Because weren't they trying to separate themselves from the Catholic Church? Yeah, yeah, so when we read something like the, the Confession, we want to remember that it was written in a specific historical time, um, and one of the things that they were arguing against was Reformed Catholicism. You say that, Roman Catholicism, excuse me. Um, where there were seven sacraments. So they're differentiating themselves from that. Um, the, the, the historical context is not the most important part of the confession, but it is an important thing to think about. Okay, Why does it say that only a minister of the word lawfully ordained may perform the sacraments? I put in there, as opposed to say a ruling elder. So if you were here when I gave the exhortation, I did not administer the Lord's Supper. Why does the Presbyterian Church limit the sacraments to ministers, teaching and believers. We're talking about right the, the relationship between the Word of God and the sacraments. The sacraments are the Word of God made visible. Teaching elders are those elders who labor primarily in the Word. So because there is that close relationship between Word and sacrament, that's why uh, the, the PCA, at least, uh, limits performance of the sacraments to ministers of the word. Yes? You should also see that in its historical context. Just like when you talk about the number of sacraments, you know, the Reformed tradition came to say there are two, but it was over against the Roman Catholic claim there were seven sacraments, and the Anabaptist Mennonite claim there were three, and we are Yeah, thank you. Yep, good. Okay, so move down to number four. Why are the sacraments? Can someone read that? That is a long quote from Burkhoff on why God gave us the sacraments. Somebody read that for me, please. God has so created man that he attains knowledge, particularly through the avenues of the senses of the sight and hearing. The word is adapted to the ear, the sacraments to the eye. Since the eye is more sensuous than the ear, it may be said that God, by adding the sacraments to the word, comes to the aid of sinful man. The truth addressed to the ear in the word is symbolically represented to the eye in the sacraments. Thank you. So, explain this quote in your own words, and defend it or not if you disagree with it. I'm sort of thinking, I took it for granted at first that you would agree with it, so if you disagree with it, then... I may be wrong, but I'll take a stab at it. I think what he's trying to get after is, and I, and I equate this back to, for instance, you know, the Israelites. When they went out of Egypt and they saw all the miraculous signs day after day after day after day, and 
mean, after they got into the, the given land, um, what? They turned against God. They revolted against God. And, and they saw, you know, they saw what he did, what he could do. So I think, it, you know, fast forward to our time, uh, we are still sinful, and we are due to wander away from God. And so we need to be reminded. That's why it says, in remembrance of me in the front of the, where we have the um, holy sacraments, um, we do every Sunday to the Lord's Supper. We, we do these to remind ourselves. You know, for instance, when a baptism is being done, you know, we should think about our baptism. We should think about our children's baptism when we have that and renew in our own minds. Um, the Bible says, renew your mind in Christ Jesus on a daily basis. These events that we do help us to renew our minds. It helps us to stay immersed in Christ. Because if we don't, we're going to drift away. We're the sheep that wander and stray, as, as the Bible talks about. So I think that's what he's getting at. You know, you have the hearing of the word. The word, when it's preached, um, it's, it's, it's effectual. It, it, you know, the Bible says it will not come back void for the purpose of which it was sent out. And it does. You know, you know emotions, and it's like Joe was talking about. You can get angry, or you can get upset, or you can be happy, or you can. There's all kinds of emotions that you both by in the preaching the word. So, and by seeing, you know, we see, we remember, we, 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 it helps us to renew our minds. Yeah, good. Um, in my in my opening prayer, I, I thank God for condescending to us. What does it mean when God condescends to us? Come down to be with us. Yeah. So what are some examples of God condescending to us? Jesus Christ. Christ, yeah. Yeah, the incarnation, certainly. God being in the temple. I'm sorry? Being the Israelites in the temple. Okay, yeah, God's presence in the temple. Yes. What else? Um, so, yeah, there, there are certainly physical condescensions. Uh, you know, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, what are some not physical kinds of ways that God condescends to us, maybe not physically, but spiritually? Every time we have, we meet in that congregation and yeah. we, we summon God. We, well, we don't summon but we come before God to worship Him. He is present. He is yeah. there. Christ is in that. He is standing there with us. He's worshiping with all the saints in heaven are worshiping with us. I know that may be a hard concept to understand, but we don't see that. We can't touch that. We can't feel it. We can't smell it. But he, sure as I'm telling you, he's there. Yeah. And we, when we have the Lord's Supper, when we have the Lord's Supper, we are having it with him and with every saint that's in heaven that has gone before us. It's, it, is, it is corporate, and um, yeah. it's an amazing thing. Amen. That's in Hebrews. I will declare your name to the assembly of the brethren. He's right there declaring the Lord's I would also say that the Bible is a condescension, right? Did God have to give us his word? No. No, but he did because he knew that we needed his word. We needed to be able to refer to his word on a daily basis. I would say the sacraments are also a condescension. And I think that's what Burkhoff was saying here. Um, because we are sinners and because we are, he says sensuous, that usually has a negative connotation, but in this case he just means we perceive things through our senses. We have the word that's adapted to the sense of hearing, we have the sacraments that is adapted to, that are adapted to the sense of sight. So this is just another way that God gives us to um, be able to perceive 
His grace in a visible way, as opposed to only through hearing or only through reading. And when you look at Christ's ministry on earth, um, we just went through John chapter 6, and uh, we said to a class, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He gives them a visible picture, he gives them real bread, and he gives them spiritual teaching, I am the bread of life. Right? So there's, there's a visible form, and then there's spiritual truths applied to that. You can also think about, um, I, I know I've used this example here before, but we have earthly fathers, um, and he gave that that's a condescension, right? That our families are God condescending to us, giving us the structure so that we can understand better who God as our father is, right? These physical pictures of spiritual realities. Okay, uh, for whom are the sacraments? Uh, I'm going to read 29.8. This is on the last page on the Lord's Supper. Because <clears throat> although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, yet they receive not the things signified thereby, but by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or be admitted thereunto. <clears throat> this is this has also um, a historical, maybe polemic uh, purpose. Um, the Roman Catholics believe that the body and blood of, or the, the bread and wine physically turn into the body and blood of Christ, of, of Christ, and so Christ is really present in the suffering, physically present. The Lutherans, uh, Martin Luther. Uh, did not he, he rejected the idea of transubstantiation that the, the elements turn into the body and the blood of Christ. But he said that the Lutherans believe that Christ is really physically present in the supper. What that means is that if someone who is not a believer partakes of the Lord's Supper, they are really enjoying I mean it wouldn't be enjoying for them, but they're really partaking of the body and blood of Christ. The Reformed understanding is that Christ is really present, but spiritually, and because he's not physically present, if an unbeliever partakes of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, um, but like the Confession says, they, they don't partake of the thing that's signified, the grace that is signified in the Lord's Supper. They're eating not, they're, they're not taking grace into themselves, or <coughs> damnation into themselves, okay? So, um, I want to extrapolate that to the sacraments in general. This idea that um, so so I, I want to be careful. I say I said here the relationship between the efficacy of the Lord's Supper and the faith of the one who partakes. I do want to be careful. I don't want to say that I'm not trying to say that uh, you have to have some certain level of faith for the sacraments to be effectual. Because that's that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, but there is some relationship between faith and the efficacy of the Lord's Supper in particular. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say here. So, how does that apply to the sacraments in general? For whom are the sacraments? Believers. Believers. And? Believers' children. Believers, children of believers, right. So, um, 
at the baptism, right? We're Presbyterians, we believe in that. So the sacraments, baptism are for believers, baptism is for believers, and for the children of believers. The Lord's Supper is for believers who have made a credible profession of faith. That's why we limit, we don't practice potato communion or uh, infant communion. We wait until the parents and the elders have examined the child and feel that they've made a, a credible profession of faith. Okay, so that that further limits the sacraments, right? So we've limited them in number, and we've limited them in uh, to whom they're to be administrated. That's why we fence the table. Uh, that's why Pastor Mock fences the table before he uh, administers the Lord's Supper. Says if you're not a Christian, do not take the sacrament. That's why we fence the baptismal font, right? Um, we examine, we interview parents um, to see if they have, if they are believers, and if they are believers, then their children can be baptized. But we wouldn't baptize the baby of someone who is not a believer, right? Okay. I also get the relationship between sacraments in the Old Testament and sacraments in the New Testament. What were the sacraments of the Old Testament? Okay, um, that's, uh, I would say that was like a means of grace. Circumcision and, and Passover, which is a sacrifice, right? There were, there were, other, there were other sacrifices as well, but um, when we think about sacraments in the Old Testament, we're thinking about circumcision and Passover. So, 27.5 on page 4, the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were, for substance, the same with those of the New Testament. <clears throat> so what is the relationship between the Old Testament sacrifices, the sacraments of Passover and circumcision, and the New Testament sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper? Well, the, the Lord's Supper essentially replaces Passover because okay. the blood of the Lamb from the Old Testament was replaced with the blood of the true lamb, mm-hmm. Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so so Lord's Supper is related to Passover, baptism is related to circumcision. Those are the New Covenant, the New Testament versions of the Old Testament sacraments. But what does 27.5 say about the relationship? So there's, there's new forms, but what about the grace that is contained in the two sets of sacraments? Is it the same? Is it different? It's the same, right? Um, so this is, again, um, partly a reaction against Roman Catholicism. Um, they said that, uh, a Roman Catholic would say that the Old Testament sacraments were uh, a completely different thing than the New Testament sacraments. Um, how does this idea, this understanding that they are, while the forms are different, the grace the, the thing to which they point, the signified, thing signified, uh, is the same. How does that inform our understanding of what the sacraments are and what their purpose is? We think about Old Testament, um, hopefully not in this church, but I, I think in maybe the broader evangelical world, there's, there's a tendency to um, dismiss the Old Testament. That's something else. And the New Testament is what we need to focus on. What is, um, how does the idea of, say, covenant theology influence our understanding of the Old Testament? Why is the Old Testament still useful to us? Well, 
the God is a God of constancy. Consistency. Yeah. Consistency. The that started in the garden is carried through that one story again times of Revelation. Right. Right. Genesis 3, 15, the Proto-Evangelion. That is the first gospel. It doesn't change throughout the Bible. It gets progressively revealed in more and more detail until finally, like Hebrews says, he, he, God revealed himself through his son. And we have the New Testament, uh, the epistles that explain that, um, yeah, explain, I'm trying to think of another word, but explain the work of Christ for us. But it's the same gospel, right? It's not a different gospel. It's not a different word of God. Um, there are certainly different historical periods, at different levels of revelation, but um, it's the same gospel. How does that apply to the sacraments? The sacraments are the same old and Well, they all point to Christ. Christ was the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Then there's actually no past, present, and future with God. It's all eternal present. So everything in our chronology points to something in God's ever-existing reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the Old Testament prophets, sacraments. Word pointed forward to Christ, right? Sacrifices pointed forward to Christ. Our worship, our sacraments point back to Christ. They're all pointing to Christ. It's the same grace contained, right? The Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith. In the promise, we're saved by grace through faith in the accomplished work of Christ. But it's the same, you know, it's not like the Old Testament saints were saved in a different way. That's what Romans 4 talks about. You know, Abraham wasn't saved by works. He was saved by faith, just like we are. Um, it makes me think also of Hebrews 12. I'm not going to read it all because we're out of time, but the kingdom that cannot be shaken. The, the Old Testament saints were, there were lots of types and shadows because they were pointing forward to something. We have more clear, uh, less, you know, less bloody sacraments. Our sacraments are, are not bloody. Their sacraments were bloody because they were pointing forward to something that had not yet happened. We see more clearly through the grace and condescension of God because we're pointing back to what Christ did. Okay, good. Now, uh, let's look at the, the two sacraments specifically, and we'll go through this. Um, so, baptism. How is baptism a sacrament? I have those four sort of criteria from Burkhoff, and you, you all said some good, good criteria as well. How is baptism a sign? Or what is baptism a sign of? That'll be the Lord's Supper. But baptism. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant, right? Covenant um, belonging, belonging to the covenant. Right. We are baptized into Christ's baptized in Christ's death, right? Um, baptized into Christ's death. The water. What is the water signifying? Yeah, cleansing of our sin. Um, how is it a seal? What does baptism seal to the one who is baptized? The grace of Christ. Grace, yeah. And um, it, it, but it's an outward expression of the, the spiritual awakening of the individual to the grace of Christ. Uh, in the case of 
Believers, baptism, yes. Uh, or infant baptism. Or infant. Yeah, it, it, it's a sign of uh, belonging to the covenant. Right? It's, a, it's sealing that child to the covenant. And like, like Ron said earlier, there are benefits of being in the covenant, and there are also responsibilities. And if you don't, if you are baptized and you are not a believer, it is a sign of judgment. Right? It's not because you fail, you fail the, the responsibilities of the covenant. How was baptism instituted by Christ? He underwent it. Hmm? He underwent it. He underwent it. Good. And he also commissioned to make disciples baptized. Yeah, the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples, baptize them, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's something that Christ told us to do. That's the institution of Christ. And Ron kind of pointed um, to the experiential dimension of baptism. Uh, how should baptism change our lives? This is also sort of number three there. What practical difference should baptism make in our lives? If you were baptized as a baby and you don't remember your baptism, how does your baptism affect your life? Or how do baptisms in the church affect your life? Well, done properly, baptizing as an infant, you should be raised in the church. Sharing the gospel with you. And from there, your knowledge of Christ grows, and you acceptance of faith, and then become an active, loving member of the covenant of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a sign of the reality that you're at least one of your parents is a believer, and it's the the, the further response there's there are further responsibilities for the parents to raise their children who are baptized in the covenant. Yes? Well, I feel a very serious connection to the congregation in which I was baptized 66 years old. And uh, it's, I feel a tie to that particular body of today, and in fact, I'll be preaching in that church in three weeks because I was baptized there in 1915. Yeah, because uh, at least in the Presbyterian Church, I'm, I'm not sure, but with other. Uh, other denominations, but the congregation takes vows in baptism as well, right? There's there's a connection because your local congregation is the, the visible, physical form of the family of God. It's not just, oh, that's cute. It's now we have duties and responsibilities to that child, to those parents as well. Um, and, and I have duties to that church. Right. Because I was baptized. Right. And then also, when we think about... Um, Had a really good point. Um, oh, yeah. So, so, so there's a there's a line I, I was trying to find it in the confession really quick. I couldn't find it, but um, it, the, the language of improving your baptism is, is used somewhere by someone. I, I'm blanking on where it is, but I when hmm? I think that was in the book. Yes, but I think he he, he got oh, it from somewhere. somewhere yeah. yeah. So the idea of improving your baptism that's not to say that you can be baptized again by someone who's better or you're better at the time, right? But when we see someone baptized, whether it's a believer or a child, that should call to remembrance our own baptism, the reality that we have been sealed to the in, into the covenant of God and into this specific local form of the, the family of God. And that should um, that should make a practical difference in our lives. We should uh, eat, you know, be uh, reinvigorated, re-strengthened, to, um, like, like Peter says, make our, our calling and election sure. Um, 
Okay, moving to the Lord's Supper. Uh, how is the Lord's Supper a sacrament? What is it a sign of? Death of Christ, right? Um, the body, the blood. Okay. What is what does the Lord's Supper seal to believers who partake of it? God's grace to them, forgiveness of their sins. Forgiveness of sins, remembrance of Christ's death for you specifically, and for uh, believers in general. Yes. And it's also a proclamation of his return because we say we do this until he comes. So mm-hmm. it's a commemoration of his death and anticipation of his return. Yes. Good. Good. It was instituted by Christ, as he said, he was in remembers of me, right? Uh, okay, what what practical difference should the Lord's Supper make in our lives? We do it here every week now. Um, why? Because we're sinful and we forget. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Um, good. What else? What? So, so we're sinful, we forget. So the Lord's Supper is a reminder of Christ's death on our behalf. Um, why else? Or, or what? What other practical difference should the Lord's Supper make in our lives? Make it real to yourself and to Right. Right. We have to be able to discern the body of Christ. We have to. That's why, uh, generally, um, I would advise if you are taking the Lord's Supper, you take that time between uh, when the elements are passed and when you partake to examine yourself. Uh, confess your sins. Good. Um, what is the relationship between the Lord's Supper and the Word? So, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's our reaffirmation, I guess, if you would, of our spiritual belief in uh, the Word of Christ and in the Word of God in the Bible as a whole. Um, it's also a fulfilling of the responsibilities that are reaffirmation of our responsibilities uh, within that, within that Word. Yeah, yeah, and it's. It's a picture of, it's a physical reminder of Christ's death. We're proclaiming Christ's death and return to the world by doing it, but we're also proclaiming it to ourselves. Like, like uh, Jackie said, we're simple, we forget, we need to proclaim it to ourselves as well. Okay, let's go back over questions to consider. What is the relationship between the Word and the sacraments?
believe in Christ, forgiveness of your sins, without ever having undergone a baptism or communion, the sacraments. Yes. And yes, in fact, that's actually kind of the way it should work, right? Well, in Christ is the work. That's right. Yeah, so, so, so we would say the sacraments are obligatory, but not necessary. So the difference there, it, it sounds like the same thing, but they're not necessary for salvation in, in the sense that you can be saved without being baptized, without taking the Lord's Supper. But they're obligatory in the sense that if you are a believer, you are commanded to partake of the sacraments. And if you neglect them, um, I forgot makes this point, if you neglect them, you're, you're doing yourself serious spiritual harm, just like neglecting any of God's commands. So, yeah, um, Keith answered the second question. The, the, the word has primacy. The word is necessary for salvation, Romans, uh, Romans 10. Right? How can they believe unless they preach the word of God? Um, but the sacraments are obligatory in the sense that we're commanded to do that. Okay? Uh, we talked about B already. What... But why is it important that the Old Testament and New Testament sacraments are the same? Because like you said earlier, the entire, all of the Old Testament points to Christ coming. And the New Testament consummates Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and glorification before God. And, and, and looking forward to his return, um, which we do now, just like in the Old Testament, when they were waiting for this Messiah to come, they waited for generations before he came. Well, I mean, we, we now are waiting for Christ to return. It's been generations. And he will come when he decides, you know, not time. But anyway, that's, there's a lot of parity. I mean, that's what, that's what the Old Testament is to the New Testament. Yeah, that's true. It shows God's consistency. Yes. 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 It's It's the consistency of of God, but also of his word, and of his salvation, right? It's the same God in the Old and New Testament pre preaching the same word, uh, saving people in the same way. And so, um, because the sacraments are visible representations of the word of God, we know that God is a God of consistency. Right? God's a God of order, not of chaos. Why did God give us physical depictions of his word? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a gift, right? It's another way that we can um, experience physically God's grace. Um, it's not to say that reading the Bible is not important. It is. Preaching of the Word is important. The sacraments are another way uh, that God gives to us to experience His grace. What should our response be to this gift? Understanding the gravity, but also the, like, in, but with joy in the gift that God has given us. Yeah, that's good. It's good joyful spread. I like that. Um, yeah, we, sh we should be thankful that God gave us physical depictions of His Word. Um, obviously, if God did it, it was a good thing to do, right? Um, but also, we can see specifically how it was, how it is good for us. Joyful sobriety. That's a good way of putting it. So, of what practical use in your life are the sacraments? You don't have to answer that. Um, but think about that. 
And then of what practical use should they be? And would like to answer that. Well, like I mentioned before, you know, when, when a young family, you know, our family's growing, but when a young family's up there and they're going through the baptism of their babies, um, and you, you know, I listen to those vows that the parents are taking, you know, and of course the vow that the congregation takes. And, you know, we have to renew that in mind. We have to realize, you know, it, it helps us to. What are the requirements of the covenant? Because that expressing of those, those vows that they're taking um, are important. You know, we wouldn't do it if it wasn't important. You know? Yeah. And it, I think it's an awesome thing to be able to um, have people up there you know, doing these things in their lives and renewing their, their, their worship, because it's a worship of Christ and what he's done for them. And the same thing in the, the Lord's Supper. You know, um, you know it, it's renewing. It's it's, you know, confession, it's all of the things that Christ has done for us in his walk, you know, Christ and him crucified. Yeah. I mean, all of those things come together. Yeah, it's, it's not, the, the sacraments are not something that we do just because God commanded them, right? Just like everything in the liturgy that you guys talked about before in this, in this series, um, we, we do do them because God commanded them, but we also do them because um, they are ways, they are means of grace, and they are ways that God uh, renews our hearts and minds. Um, so I think we should um, endeavor to come to the sacraments more intentionally. Um, I think, you know, there's a temptation when, like when a baby gets baptized, just think that it's cute, you know, they're crying, they're playing Pastor Mark's spirit or whatever. Um, it is cute, but it's it's not just something to look at. It's, it's something, and it's not just something for that child, it's not just something for that family, it's something for every believer who has been baptized. And it's also a sign for those who have not been baptized. This is something that you, you should come to faith and you should be baptized. Okay, good. Anything else before we close? All right, can I get somebody volunteer to close us in prayer? Somebody else say? I know. I'll, 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 I didn't see any nod. I will not take the judge from the Go ahead. Okay. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this uh, excellent time to be reminded of your word and, uh, and why you gave us uh, the sacraments. Please help us to remember those and to take joy somberly uh, when we uh, partake of uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, guys.